Hamilton comes out. Is he ahead of Max Verstappen? No, he is not. Max Verstappen pulls the undercut on Lewis Hamilton. Max Verstappen started on the front row, sees a checkered flag for the second year in a row, wins the French Grand Prix and comes home to take victory number 27 in his career. Hello and welcome to the Undercut Podcast. We're back once again and it is time to review the French Grand Prix, a Grand Prix that proved to be quite interesting, but we will get into that. First of all, as usual, I have to welcome my valiant co-hosts making the effort to be with me here on Monday evening, as always, joined by Timo albus Daly and Ellie Mae Taylor. Hello. Hello. It's just occurring to me, I'm the only person that doesn't really have three regular use names for the introduction. I'm quite plain in that regard. We're just more upper class than you, clearly. Mm, some would argue against that. Although I'm not on my own today with just the two names for the introduction. We have Edda on a with us on the podcast, a former drive driver in herself. She's sort of stumbled back to what was once the Drive Drive Formula One podcast to review the French Grand Prix with us. How are you this evening? Hello, I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. We're uh, a bit warm, but otherwise all good and ready to get going. So we'll crack on with our first section, what the hell has happened. Uh, we'll take a quick look back at the goings on around circuit, Paul Ricard over the weekend. And as I alluded to earlier, it was an exciting French Grand Prix. We haven't had one of those since before we started racing at Paul Ricard easily. So what, what seemed to make the magic happen this weekend? I'll start off by saying last year's was arguably enjoyable and exciting as well because of the big overtake two laps from the end. We weren't 100% sure if Max was going to be able to do that or not. But I digress. We're not focusing on 2021. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, you could argue it's the new regulations and that's just the easier answer. But I think as we'll get into later and could possibly be its own podcasts coinciding with the entire of the season, I think Ferrari's, and bleep me out here, Ferrari's with themselves is why it was potentially more interesting because we wouldn't have got the podium that we did in the end if Charles hadn't made what some people claim is a mistake other people claim it's horse and it's actually the car um, and if Carlos had decided to do a Silverstone instead and just ignore team strategy and because again we'll get into this but he didn't have to come in really he could have ignored them and just kept going and if, if it wasn't for Ferrari kind of being their own worst enemy, then it might not have been such an interesting race. Yeah, I kind of agree that it it was interesting kind of for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> In that, you know, Ferrari just, they just had a bad race. <laughs> Even with Simon. As you can tell everyone, she's still very sad about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> basically <laughs> they're like competing against themselves aren't they rather than Red Bull at the moment yeah it's like, like Red, Red Bull don't need to have strategists they just wait for Ferrari to do whatever and then it'll be fine for them regardless they've got to pay, pay more attention to Mercedes at this rate than, than Ferrari so they have when they their reliability is good and their strategy is okay the driver then messes up <laughs> It's like, so when does that happen this season? <laughs> All three of those things have been together. Um, Bahrain. That's not good, though. No, because that's the first race of the season and we've just marked the halfway point. They've gone on a downward spiral, haven't they? Yeah, it was a, a too much of a strong start for Ferrari and then they sort of rested on their laurels a bit early on in the season and the net result we've seen is them forget how to develop an engineer a car as the season's gone on. Arguably, their car has gotten worse as the season's developed and equally, they've forgotten how to do strategy, although many argue they never knew in the first place. But the development and the technical side of things, go back to a point Timo raised was a question of whether or not Charles spun due to mechanical fault or whether or not it was just his own mistake and it does seem like he's had these throttle problems sitting around since Austria where he's had no throttle control he can't sort of basically come off the throttle and 
the fact because they're fly-by-wire well, throttle it's computer programmed the computer is still holding the car at about 30 40 percent throttle which is a bit too much for coming through the exit of the fast right hander at the end of the circuit and the net result is uh forwards into the barriers and not a good look for ferrari especially as the car hadn't taken too much damage the annoying thing was that he couldn't select reverse because the car was sat at about 40 percent throttle on its own accord Hence the reason why there was that very long exclamation from him, which I believe might have been very cunningly edited by Sky on the live. Uh, it might have been a little bit of a delay there for them to edit out potentially the first and last syllables. And yeah. It Whatever was, are you alluding to? <laughs> I think it could have been F followed by a lot of A's, then an R and then a K. Um, <laughs> I think it... Yeah, I think that potentially Ferrari might have thrown that one away on their own grounds of not fixing a problem they've known about since Austria. I was going to say, if that were you bring a point there, that I wanted to say that if it was, if we'd had Austria last weekend and they only had a week to kind of sort it, I could maybe even forgive them a bit for it, but it hasn't been. They've had a couple of weeks and like you say, they've known about it and it's, they're not a team where, okay, I know everyone's kind of working to the same budget, but at the same time, it's Ferrari if they are kind of, they always say that this is like you see how everyone else in Formula One does their things, but with Ferrari, we do things our way. And that's great when it works, but when it doesn't and it doesn't consistently like it is, then you're like, maybe you shouldn't be saying we do it this way. Look how great it works because it's not working. And maybe even if you can't fix it perfectly, I feel like there would be some kind of middle ground where you could get it stuck on at least 20%. So it's like it's, it still buggers you a bit, but it's not as bad. I think the other flaw to Ferrari having this proper engine issue is a case of they have always been the engine team. They've been the people you buy your engines from. And equally, the same with their road cars, you buy Ferrari engines and you just happen to get a chassis with them. And all of a sudden, it's the Ferrari engine that seems to be the issue. They've got a brilliant chassis under them that's incredibly drivable and doesn't have the same snappy nature that the Red Bulls have or the porpoising issues of the Mercedes or quite as much as the Mercedes do. But the problem is they've now forgotten how to make what's always been famously their strongest point. Even through 2019, they had an absolute pig of a chassis, but their engine was an absolute firecracker. As soon as you took that away, look at their results through 2020, same pig of a chassis, all of a sudden an engine that had been castrated. And it's annoying to see Ferrari trip up over what's always been supposedly their forte. I think as well, it's kind of, I don't think the buck fully lies on Mattia Bonotto but previously, Ferrari are like what Red Bull are with their drivers in that they used to get rid of their team principals pretty quickly when things weren't happening, uh, things weren't going their way. And I don't necessarily think they should get rid of Matteo Bonotto, but I think things need to change in terms of, I don't know, strategists or engineers, something like that, because they can't, they can't keep doing this. I think Matteo needs a good slap to get this team sorted because it's not working, to be honest. So it's like, try and keep him because I think consistency, you see with Mercedes and with Red Bull, like Toto and Christian, they've been there since like 1950 at this rate. So, and whereas Ferrari, God, no, I can't remember like how many we've got through in our lifetimes already. It's kind of, we've got three more prime ministers or more Ferrari bosses at this rate. Um, and I feel like it's just, he needs to go on, so I was listening to our, our American friends at the Rate Trip podcast earlier, and they were saying they could do with some kind of um, team bonding exercise week or something. But at the same time, picturing that, I don't trust them to actually do a successful week of that. Um, there'd be people doing trust falls everywhere and just slamming into concrete, and it wouldn't really work, I think. Um, so they do need to sort of their shit out. I just don't know how, because I don't think replacing everyone's going to work. But then how do you motivate? Who do you bring in? To, to sort that out because there's no one kind of from their past stuff like you can't really call on Ross Braun or Domenicali to come in because they're kind of busy doing their thing the F1 itself Montezemolo I don't know how A useful that would be or B how willing he would be considering how he got chucked out to begin with and then you're already kind of going back to the 90s at that point and I don't know if that's the best idea either because that was when they were all in a rut as well What about Jean Todd? I just want him to enjoy his retirement. <laughs> I don't want to stress the little man out. He's, he's a nice guy. Let's, let's leave him out of it. Let's not stress him. 
do you take Ferrari's sort of lead engineer and move them up? Because that's essentially how Bonotto ended up in his position. If you wind the clock back far enough to the 90s, the Schumacher era at Ferrari, Bonotto was regularly seen around the paddock because he was their chief engineer when it came to drivetrains. And I think the problem then arose when he was quietly moved up into a position where he knew bugger all. Ask him to make you a good engine. He'll make you a good engine. He'll make you a champion. Maybe that is the problem then. They've got all the right people. They're just in the wrong jobs. Yeah, and and I, yeah a, a cabinet reshuffle at Ferrari could solve a lot of their issues because all of a sudden you'd have engineers doing engineers' jobs and strategists and team directors doing team directors' jobs and strategy jobs. And I think it would balance a lot better. Either that or they just buy Checo's racer uh, strategist from Monaco and then they've at least got their strategy sorted out. So then whilst everyone else is funding over everything else, at least they've got that side of things sorted. It does feel a bit like... Um, that scene from Ice Age where the squirrels go out to the nut and the water keeps piling out of the, the, the ice face and you just can't quite catch all of it. And it's just, if it's not one thing, it's something else. And it just, it's just a right carry-on. But it's sad and we're not laughing because we want them to do well. <laughs> I guess it's kind of a case of when you look back at McLaren and Zach Brown realised that he wasn't the correct team principal at the time and, step, and stepped aside. I think maybe people need to start doing that in Ferrari and sort of, yeah, like shuffling about a bit and realising, okay, I may not be the best person for this job. Let me go back to doing what I know best and creating a damn good engine. I think in the short term, I think Ferrari's strategy needs to be whatever their first idea is, immediately scrap it and then think about it a bit more. I was going to say exactly that. (laughs) Yeah, if that's what you've immediately thought of, don't do that. Think of something a little bit better and uh, go from there. But I mean, despite that, Carlos's pace early doors on the hard tyres was pretty incredible. He was rocketing through the field. He had a huge amount of drivability on those hard tyres and really proved that, as I might have mentioned in the preview, uh, the Ferrari did have a really strong hand through sectors one and three, which gave them enough headway to cover off the Red Bulls down the Mistral straight and again, just fend them off down the pit straight. So there's definitely, as we keep alluding to, there's something with that Ferrari that works and the chassis set up and the way that it can handle itself through medium, slow, fast speed corners. As long as it's not a straight line, the Ferrari is doing well, which is kind of the antithesis of um, 2019. But then, of course, it all went wrong for Charles, as we've already mentioned. Another throttle issue seemed to spit him off the track. But on the other end of the pit wall, or literally a few garages down, Red Bull had a pretty bang average weekend. Yeah, it was. If, if Ferrari have the good of the better car, but bad strategists, Red Bull have the good strategists, but not quite the car. But then the drivers kind of balance it out a little bit in terms of quality and luck. And then you've got Mercedes kind of in the background. They've got like 80% of what they need. So it's just there, but not quite enough to be a really big threat just yet. So it's this kind of, we've all got the right elements, but again, we can't, act. none of us actually has the one and all of them to actually do anything. But it was weird, the difference between Checo and Max this weekend. It's just, Checo just never really seemed there. Uh, and as well, before we go into the sort of Checo, I would... You know how much I love Carlos Sainz and Ferrari, but I think <laughs> we have to remember that Sainz had a had a brand new engine, so he was gonna be quicker anyway. And also, if you look at the start of the race when Verstappen was chasing Leclerc, although he couldn't overtake him, Verstappen was take was able to take a lot tighter lines. And he looked more comfortable whilst Leclerc was sort of squirming about. So were Red Bull kind of average? I don't know. I'm waiting for your negative comment about Carlos Sainz. You're saying you love him, but I'm like, where's where's the poop? Well, the but is that he had a better engine than everybody else on the grid. And as well, I think what helped... Carlos was the fact that the two Hasses pitted early because there was a DRS train from Ricardo in ninth to Sainz in 14th that I think he got a bit stuck in. And when Hass both pitted quite early, that broke the DRS train a bit and it allowed Carlos to move forward a lot quicker than I think he may, maybe would have if they hadn't have pitted. 
So I'm, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'll get on to Hass later because I've got a lot to say about them. So I'm not going to get ahead of myself. Checo's virtual safety car start, though, it wasn't amazing, was it? It was actually rubbish. Yeah, he was <laughs> caught in that board, Russell, there. There's, <laughs> I found a brand a brand new meme group on Facebook, and it's a Simpsons Formula One meme crossover page, and it's absolutely fantastic. And I'll try and include a link to it somewhere or put it on the podcast story. because there's a brilliant one of Checo Perez um, saying oh, I sleep in a race car bed and, and literally it's Checo Perez at safety car restarts because he got lunched by George Russell coming out of that safety car. And I think Georgia played very cleverly with his strategy there. Mm. George had been well under the delta for quite a while, which meant that just as he knew the safety car was ending, he could get on it and have a huge amount of momentum. Whereas he'd been pushing Checo early, Checo had been essentially above the delta and had to drop back a bit. So he didn't get a penalty. The net result is, as the safety car comes in, Nick goes green, Checo's well off the pace on slightly colder tyres from having to try and get back under the delta. Meanwhile, George is steaming up to him, having sort of preheated his tyres quite cleverly. And yeah, Max might have won the race. He had a bit of an easy run to the end after Charles spun out. But even then, I'd, as much as through the early sectors, it looked like the Ferrari was struggling. I think that's because Ferrari knew they had to try and extract their pace through the corners. And the Ferrari was, I'll admit to it being on its knife edge, but I wouldn't say it was necessarily struggling. It was struggling down the straight, certainly. I don't think they could have bled off any more downforce without losing the corners. But even then, Verstappen was having to think of something different to try and get past Leclerc, which he just simply couldn't find a way of doing it. Going back to Ruston Perez briefly, though, I think that even though in the, I think the circumstances that it was, obviously, is very clever by George Mercedes there to do it the way they did, but I think even if they hadn't done it there, you would have still got past him before the end of the race. And... Okay, it's fine not to offend Checo too much here, because he's obviously not a match for Staffan in terms of quality. But the fact that Mercedes on pace now and on strategy can pass a Red Bull, never mind the Ferraris, which I feel like we've not really seen a lot of battling with them. We saw signs in Russell having a bit of a tip, but again, I heard him over saying, brand new engine, so slightly unfair against Mercedes there. Um, but they've kind of proven that, okay, they're not there yet but they are very very close to being a proper threat and after the summer break I'd be, I'd be very surprised if it isn't a proper three-way battle and they'll be taking points out of both of them when because it's like they they have everything to gain and nothing to lose really because the back to Alpine and McLaren are so huge that they're like yeah we're just going to be here and we're going to cause chaos for you two and let's see what we can do. I mean, that does lead nicely into like the next point I had jotted down in my notes, which is a case of Mercedes have stepped up and now they don't need for there to be problems ahead of them to nab a podium. This week, they're on for at least one person on the podium. Charles mm-hmm. dropping out was essentially an added bonus. Then Ferrari also ensuring Carlos wasn't going to be on the podium with that weird extra stop meant that it was a sure thing for George Russell to get up there as well. And yeah, they've stepped up. They've found their form with the car. They've dialed out a lot of the issues. And I think over the summer break where they won't necessarily be working, but potentially two, three races after the summer break, going into something like Singapore. I was going to say Singapore, if they can nail their qualifying, because it's going to be tricky to overtake there, if they can get at least one of their cars on the front row and then on that first lap do what they need to do, they could have that relatively straightforwardly. And obviously, bear in mind, you've got the complete closure over the summer break. It will take them potentially three weeks to get back up to speed, get the developments done, tested and onto the cars. Mm. By the time we roll around to Singapore, where we basically we just go Belgium, Zandvoort, Italy, three weeks back to back. Then we have a week gap for Singapore. There's plenty of time for them to run everything through the sim and find out what works. So I reckon, yeah, latter half of the season, probably even Singapore, we could see this revitalised Mercedes really step their game up. Although... Not necessarily having stepped their game up, but just out of sheer consistency. I know we're rattling through this pretty quickly. Uh, Alpine are now fourth in the constructor standings, which means alongside Ferrari, Red Bull and Mercedes, they're the only other team to have both drivers in the top 10. Which is a bit of a weird statistic when you think about it. You never truly think about Alpine being that sort of not necessarily dominant, but the consistency is certainly there. I think there's strong drivers in Ocon and Alonso, and I think... Coming into the second half of this season at the moment, 
I think Alpine, uh, they are the fourth strongest car. So I think they should take fourth in the constructors. They're not going to match Mercedes and definitely not Red Bull and Ferrari. But I think they should they should be able to keep fourth from McLaren because I don't think McLaren are going to bring any more upgrades this year. I think they said they were going to focus on next year's car, was it? I think that with Alpine, the points that they've lost out on has been more down to bad luck, whereas McLaren is just because they don't have the car. And I, I know we try not to indulge too many what-ifs there, especially when it's a couple of years down the line from, from when this was the case. But I would quite like to have seen Ocon as the reserve drove for Alpine and seen Alonso and Ricardo in there if Ricardo had stayed there instead of making the switch to McLaren. Because I think then they could potentially be up there battling with Mercedes for third place. Because as moving Ricardo when he was at Alpine Renault back then, he absolutely trounced Ocon like he was nothing. Um, and Ocon's a decent driver, but at the same time, it just shows that when you give Ricardo the goods, he is there. And that for whatever reason, um, despite the podium that McLaren got with Lando and Imola, which was a bit through luck because they needed a bunch of other stuff to happen there as well. Um, I wonder if Alpine would have taken this long to be getting ahead of McLaren and the constructors. And I just think, yeah, it's all well and good focusing on next year's car already, but then does that potentially mean that, I can't remember who's after them in the constructors right now, but um, does that mean then that they're putting themselves at risk of losing another place then. I think them in sixth. Which again kind of that they're that close. They're also pretty close if my numbers are correct. I'll leave you to talk. You only need a couple you need one or two crazy races. I mean if we're gonna follow the logic for Italy, for example, of the previous year's winner doesn't finish the Grand Prix and then an Alfa Romeo wins that race. Hungary might be a crazy race. Because it was last year, wasn't it? Yeah. I'll take that too. I think on the is it the AWS graphics? Um, uh, they worked out that McLaren were actually the sixth fastest car, I think. Six or seven. So yeah, I remember seeing that one come up and it's looking at essentially the pace difference. I think it was based around Ferrari and obviously Red Bull have now inched their way to being quicker. Mercedes have closed the gap and it was based off the differences at the start of the season. And McLaren, yeah, did rank quite low on that list, which does make you wonder, obviously, Lando Norris is doing a hell of a lot of work to drag that car into points where it's not supposed to be. And Daniel Ricciardo seems to have found a bit of form with it. But like us, we'll go back to the points quickly. Alpine lead that sort of trio on 93 points. McLaren aren't too far behind. The switch has only just happened on 89. But then 51 points, Alfa Romeo. To be fair, they have been pointless since Azerbaijan. So both both the sort of McLaren and Alpine are pulled away from Alfa Romeo, but not so far that it would only take a few crazy races for things to turn around again. I think we're agreeing with you there, silently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The, the silence of agreement there, perfectly fine. Um, speaking of teams that have turned things around a little bit, Aston Martin had a good weekend of things, by their own measure, at least. Obviously, with Lance Stroll taking the final points-paying position, Sebastian Vettel really not that far behind at all, literally nipping his heels. I think the final bit closing point was 0.3 seconds. It was close. And they're only eight points adrift of Alpha Tauri in eighth. So some more weekends like this with this sort of fairly sort of steady consistency just at the back of the points, we'll see them close up to the sort of Red Bull junior team, as it were, and see them back in the tussle. Um, they've only had one double points finish, which was Imola this season. Alpha Tauri, though, have had no double points finishes since Baku. And no double points finishes at all this season and pointless since Baku as well. So it's all still to play for down at the bottom end of the charts. It's just interesting to see Aston Martin finally finding their pace in the car and seeing something that's quite drivable. Seb was able to battle with it a little bit this season, but uh, well, this race, but he wasn't earlier on in the season. But team, I'd be cautious to say that they found their pace. They had a good couple of races, and you've still got Lance Stroll in the car, which I know he got a point. I see this, but it felt like, and if you watched it back, the last lap with the last corner. It does look like he 
semi-breached instead of it there, which, considering it would have been one hell of a move from Vettel for him to get past anyway, a bit unnecessary childish for just one point when it's for the team anyway, and you potentially risk DNFing both of your cars on the last lap on the last corner, which does seem very on brand for an Aston Martin fan thing to do, but it kind of felt a bit unnecessary. And I kind of said, like, only eight points adrift of Alvatari. That's still pretty depressing, though, considering we had to extra, had to order extra low bars by which to measure them by this season. Um, like you say, no double point finishes for the Alvatari at all by this year, and Aston Martin still haven't been able to get past them when they've managed to do that. It kind of just shows that, okay, you're improving, but considering where you were, it's like, okay, good for you, but also... Williams could win the next race if we have a crazy Belgium, uh, crazy Belgium, crazy Hungary, and none of that is for them anymore. They're back to bottom. I mean, I'll admit when I say Aston Martin had a good week of things is a stretch, and the fact that when I say they finished a race, yeah, when I say they found their pace, their pace isn't very fast either. I think that's a crucial thing to take away from this. While they found their pace and it's steady, it's not a competitive pace. Um, It does highlight quite how big of a lead AlphaTauri drew out early on, the fact that they have been... I'm trying to figure out how they managed that, to be honest, now that we look at them and question uh, so much. Um, AlphaTauri, 27 points, Aston Martin are on 19, and basically, yeah, um, Azerbaijan was a double points finish for them, and with obviously Gasly fifth, and Sonoda was ninth or something, and it means they basically just hoovered up like a decent glut of points all of a sudden. I was going to say, isn't most of the points with AlphaTauri actually from Yuki Tsunoda? So it's got to be really given Gasly's luck. Mm. Yeah, he's had a horrible start to the year. And yeah. the middle part too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, AlphaTauri aren't doing brilliantly. And I mean, weirdly enough, I'm in a group chat with one of the engineers from AlphaTauri at the moment. And he says if this season doesn't get any better, he's probably going to jump ship and... It doesn't for me. It could be to someone like Hess, which this time last year you'd think, what the hell are you doing? Yeah, yeah. probably not a terrible idea. He says he probably won't go to Ferrari or Red Bull as the big team. But yeah, it's he says that it's not as strong as it really could have been. And the package they should have had, they haven't had together. So potentially good for next year, but this year, bad bad year to be Alpha Tauri, that's for certain. But speaking of people that it's good and bad to be, that leads us into our winners and spinners section. So we'll open up with our winners. And Timo, I understand McLaren a bit. Why have you put Ted Kravitz down on your winners section? Well, because... Bear with me. On... There was a lot of racing this weekend. Qualifying before then, uh, on Saturday, before we got too too busy with everything. Nice pre-race show everything. Ted Kravitz was in the kind of fan zone area... It was very nice with some like some nice little shops around the place and all this kind of stuff. Just having a nice mosey around. And there was a woman climbing into a fountain to get some water and he started speaking French to her and showing up like, yeah, I speak French. And he was just having a really nice time and it was just very wholesome. And I was just like, you know what? Even if all the races were absolutely terrible, we still have Ted Kravitz. And I feel like that's worth watching for for, for, no, for no other reason. So speaking French, he smelled some perfume and then went back and thought, oh, I might actually go and buy that later. Kind of just... You kind of forget the camera's there. And even the cameraman got in on the action and just started like picking up cheese. You could see the hand just coming around from behind the camera, just taking some of that. And I was like, you know what? I don't mind about the rest of the weekend now. I've had my nice moment. So. And that's McLaren, both in the points. And I play Ricardo ninth. Would have been nicer to see him a bit further up. But as I've been saying in our group chats, and to, not just to stop Ellie May's wrath on me for this, but... I'm back on the Daniel Ricciardo train. I, I'm just going to put all my eggs in that basket and just, I really want him to do well. And I think he can, he can do it. I think this is the kind of not as positive the momentum as he wants to be, but at least it is still positive momentum. So I think, again, we could really need a crazy race where Jacob and I were talking, if we have some kind of bowling potentially next time, a la last year, it would be quite amusing if it was Bottas again. Um, and it takes the Ferraris and the Red Bulls out. McLaren then could be potentially fighting Mercedes for the win, or at least podium. That would be good fun to see, and it would be a hell of a boost for, for Ricardo as well. So I'm very much, I'm, I'm trying to just go with their momentum. Sunball would be a great place to win, actually, with all the fans that turn out for them there. So 
I'll take that instead. No, I can't complain about that, especially the Ted Kravitz thing. I think that potentially if Formula One were to be taken away tomorrow, I reckon Ted Kravitz would do quite nicely to have like a James Mayer style. I think he should do the commentary by himself, Ted Kravitz. Just him, just put like two different personalities. So he'd just be talking to himself back and forth. I think it'd be great. Commentary this week is provided by Ted Kravitz and Amira. Mm. He would do great in those like Joanna Lumley style go to like... He should do travel, man. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, can you imagine Ted Kravitz and Joe Lysett in some far-flung country on holiday? <laughs> that would be quite good. No, Travel Man Formula One edition. Ted Kravitz has to take Joe Lysett to every Formula One race and do like Travel Man. Guy F1, if you're listening, you've got to give us some money for that idea because, you know, we don't do that kind of stuff for free. We'll write this down and we'll, we'll send a draft of it to Channel 4. I reckon it works. Um, Ellie May, I'll let you go with your winner first. Okay, um, I have two. Obviously, Mercedes again, they get their double podium. They're picking up the points that at this point, Ferrari and Red Bull are kind of handing to them. Um, I guess at the start of the race, they really come alive when they're at high fuel. And Hamilton, I think, was kind of lapping the same times as Verstappen and Leclerc. But then it gets to sort of the end of the race and he couldn't really he wasn't really near Verstappen and I think Verstappen was just kind of maintaining his advantage and not putting too much stress on the car so it's kind of that thing of uh, Mercedes are really good in high fuel but they haven't quite got it yet on low fuel but nonetheless they were still pretty strong I am intrigued though with it being a 10 second gap at the end I mean it's obviously a good gap but it's not like ridiculous either. So it's kind of if you're Red Bull and you're seeing that, you're not worried, but you were like, we should probably keep an eye on that at the same time because if anyone's going to do it, they've been just kind of quietly there in the background, like you were saying, just hoovering up these points. And again, Lewis has got something to really hunt for and fight for, and that is arguably when he's most dangerous, which we saw that last year when he really had to fight for it. I mean, the last four-ish races, I think, before Abu Dhabi. It was ridiculous from him, the resurgence he had there. So it's like, you got their reliability and your Red Bull thinking, yeah, we'll focus on Ferrari because Mercedes, they're good, but I'm not there. I don't know if that would be the best plan there. But it's just, but the same, well, yeah. yeah. I'm not saying anything else. I'll go on tangents. Yeah, I'll say Lewis on the hunt is one of the most dangerous things in Formula One. You do not want to be in his way. Like, I think it was everything from Brazil onwards, basically, last season. So Brazil, so Qatar, Brazil, Qatar, Saudi, Saudi Abu Dhabi. He was on a mission. And yeah, it incredible drive from him. And again, it's one of those things that if he gets wind of a potential chance late on in this season, that he's close enough. It's going to be incredible. I think that's the only way we can put it. It's, it's the kind of thing, if Max had made a mistake and it had been charged, if anyone essentially had said for Lewis behind him he, and he'd gone off on a corner or something and he'd get shaved down to like five seconds or something, he would still have been fine. But with Lewis, I think I've got to really concentrate now just to make sure, because if anyone is going to come cut that down, it is going to be him. And then it's like, oh no, here we go again. Mm. The repeat of last year, he gets him one lap from the end. He's like, well, comes a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think my winner from this weekend, I, a few other people to pick really apart from Max Verstappen as soon as he he played a, a long game. I think he realised early on he wasn't going to get past Charles Leclerc. And as much as I want to sing the praises of Ferrari, unfortunately, do not fall in my winner's section. Um, so, it, yeah, it does fall to Max rather to be my winner this week. Great drive, really managed his tyres, had a, just again one of his weirdly mature races He's sort of very fast shaken off the whole crash for Snap and Stick that he had quite a few years ago. And he's produced just another one of his really solid drives of maturity and just measured racing, which I quite like to see from him. And again, it's one of those things that for me confirms as to why he was able to inch out the championship last year was the case of he just matured enough as a driver. A lot of people will argue that it was close, but I reckon... Max was had reached the level of maturity needed to get the championship win. And I wonder if he hadn't won it last year, if we'd see that maturity this year, or if he'd have gone back in the other direction then, because he's like, well, I tried being mature and it didn't work, so I'm going to go back to being Mad Max. 
See, I did think that as I was literally saying it, and I thought you knew you were going to come back with it as well. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know. A bit of me wants to see crazy Max Verstappen come up against sort of Hamilton. Now they're in cars that can really duke it out, especially chucking Perez, Russell, and Leclerc. If Red Bull's reliability comes back into play and it becomes more urgent for him to, if he's, if like qualifying's fine, but in the race it's, mm, and he definitely needs that win. And there's Charles or Carlos or those who are kind of coming after him. You then might see that Mad Max, but we kind of need people to have a couple of booms in the technical department for, for us to get that. Yeah, I can see potentially later on in the season if he's not leading the championship fight at that point, which given the lead he's got at the moment, which is quite ridiculous, it, we could see some big lunges from Max Verstappen coming into the final leg of the season. Uh, we'll go Maybe to Ed. he bowls next week after a poor qualifying. <laughs> Wait and see. He gets bowled out by someone from the back of the grid. Guan Yu Zhou. He, he does the thing. Oh, he does. He has really bad qualifying. Well, I don't know how. I've not got that far in my, my my prediction yet. But and then he proceeds to eat it. No, we get 2020 version 2.0. Verstappen takes out his front uh, steer front uh, was it left wheel on the back mm. grid, and uh, he doesn't make the race start. He won't go bowling. He just bowls himself out. It's a gutter ball. <laughs> Um, we'll move over to Ada to Edda to finish off winners. Who is your sort of big winner from the weekend? Um, my winner is Mercedes, just because I feel like they've got um, even at the start of the season when their porpoising was horrendous, they just had a positive vibe in the team, and it's like it's paying off now, and they're getting better, and they got their double podium, which finally in the season they got it. And I can just see them getting better and making good use of other teams mistakes and I don't think they're like at the top yet but hopefully they will be by the end of the season but they're um I feel like they're playing the long game but I don't think they'll win the constructors even though they're getting better I don't think that's possible but it could be possible but I think only 44 points off Ferrari at the moment if my math is correct and you saying about the double podium how positive the vibes they're having there reminded me of that meme of the the athletes and you've got the guy celebrating really hard and biting into the medal and he's in third place it's like it's it's exactly that (laughs) i think where mercedes know they're not really fighting for the championship they're just having fun Mm -hmm. there's no pressure on them yeah they've got no pressure they're having a great time i think that's good for george as well because he's clicking with that there's there's no pressure and he's just getting involved in the team and like there's Mm -hmm. not an awkward vibe between him and um, Lewis as well, which is good. It kind of reminds me that I've got two bits on there actually made me think of that um, with George with less pressure, it was very much, and I like that Toto came on the radio because we've not heard Toto in ages on, on the team radio yeah. telling him to, to kind of calm down and you can go and do it again. Um, and he then just did exactly that and it's like, oh yeah, I can just do that because I kind of was already past him technically if we're going to if we're going to take it from his point of view um, so there's no reason I can't do it and then he does it again so you've got this very kind of family atmosphere like you were saying and that's great for them to develop and it kind of reminds me of 2013-2014 Mercedes more so maybe this year 2013 because they're not at the top yet but of we've on a, we've got some quiet confidence here that this is going to be something and it's kind of the Rosberg Hamilton dynamic of it. it's quite a nice thing at the moment so maybe we do the maths on that, 2025 comes, then we have a 2016 scenario and we have to worry about that then. But that's a futurist problem. But for now, we can have like really chill vibes and enjoy the enjoy everything. See, I like it. Uh, 2013, I was literally just sort of checking my years for that when I was thinking it's very much like watching George come into Mercedes when they're in not necessarily a bit of a slump, but not necessarily at the peak, mm-hmm. is watching Hamilton come into Mercedes just as they're finally, as they're sort of on the up as a constructor. And it's, a great start for Russell. It's a good start for a chance for everyone else to sort of just find their feet. But you can tell everyone's still a little bit wary about what Mercedes are likely to pull out the bag. And all I everyone... say is that Ellie may need to prepare herself mentally for in a few years' time when Russell goes on a six-year trot to become a six-time world champion. <laughs> just follows that um, only ever to be broke, only to have that streak broken by what Nick DeVries or something once. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the uh, 2025 DeVries Russell Championship will go down in history. But yeah. prediction. 
that's probably not even the wildest thing we've said on this podcast, but yeah, it's, it's nice. What also, what I'm sure I've said it on the podcast before is it's nice seeing Lewis Hamilton enjoy the sport mm. and he's really enjoying the season and he seems to just be a lot happier every weekend. He's sort of on social media. He just seems more of an upbeat person than last year when he was so focused, determined, almost worn down by the racing this year. He's just, just a whole better person and just not nice 300 Grand Prix. It's kind of like, yeah, second place not bad and it's the, the, the statistic of no one who's been over 300 races and won a race but I'm like yeah you can't really say that with Lewis though because I feel like if anyone's going to break that rule it's going to be him as well because I mean he's broken every th- other record at this point almost so he's probably going to do that one so it's uh, yeah, it's, just, it's just an interesting stat because you've got only six drivers in there and two of them are on the grid and it's kind of Frustrating if you're Hamilton, if you want that most races in F1 and Alonso is just still there going, no, nope, I'm going to keep that one. I've got about 49 ahead of you at the moment, so I just need to stay here for a couple more years so that even if you stay longer, you're not going to beat me on that one. I mean, yeah, Alonso is on 348 and Lewis has obviously just made it to 300s, but obviously for the rest of the season, they're most likely going to be going up in step. Mm. I was having this conversation with Ben Weller earlier. I literally pulled up the messages on my phone and Ben said, do you think Hamilton will stay to see his 400th? They were asking him about that in the press conference because apparently Toto was saying, yeah, we could get him there. He's like, that's a lot of races. But it's like, that's not a no, Lewis. It's not a no. Did you see his face, though? Mm-hmm. When he got past you. <laughs> so that's the meme I sent you, Jesse. That's the reaction he had. Yeah. yeah. The sort of slightly lost. But again, 400, make it another 100 races. That's possibly only four seasons that would make Lewis Hamilton. I say with Dominique Carly and what he's trying to do at the moment, that's that's nothing. So hmm. few years tops. Four or five yeah. years and he'll be there. Which would make him about Fernando. Well, make him forty-one. And bear in mind, Fernando Alonso turns forty-one on the 29th of this month. So this podcast will hopefully be out by the time Fernando Alonso's or just before Fernando turns forty-one. So the fact is, that. you can still race at that age. It's the question of whether or not Lewis Hamilton will be competitive or in a competitive team when he gets to that point. We'll want to, because Fernando's still got that passion. Lewis might not at 41. Yeah. Anyway, that's for a different point in time. We'll move on to something not quite as positive, our spinners. Timo, you want to pick Haas? I do, because they had everything to play for. And I could have put until he DNF'd and it was awkward because of the TV, kind of a bit of both of them, to be fair, but I could have put K-Mag as one of my winners because he got seven places on the fucking opening lap. And just, it's like Carlos Sainz is still back in 18th. You're like, wait, I'm in the works car. Why is he doing that in a house? What's, what's going on here? We got on the wrong car that just painted it differently and just swapped us without realising. Um, but it's kind of the first, I think it was the safety car that came out for the clerk. They'd only just pitted K-Mag, I think. Um, I can't remember if they'd done Nick or not yet, but either way, there wasn't really a lot of benefit of bringing them both in, or at least bringing K-Mag in again so soon after, it would have been better to at least split the strategy, get K-Mag up there, because at that point, with him being so far back anyway at the start, you've got a lot less to lose by just risking it, and it's kind of what a team like Haas need to do if they want to climb their way up a bit further at the Constructors' Championship. And after that, it just kind of seemed a bit messy and Mick didn't really have a good race. Um, I mean, very sweet afterwards asking where Vettel finished and we loved that, but in terms of racing, there wasn't a lot going on there. Um, and obviously Latifi and um, KMA coming together didn't help things and I don't quite know how much damage there was caused. They're clean enough to retire from from the looks of it, but it didn't look too severe, but it just seemed that like Mercedes capitalising on Red Bull and Ferrari, Haas could have capitalised a lot on some of the, those around them, especially with Yuki retiring and Pierre Gasly not being brilliant in the car there and with Joe not doing well either and Alpha having a bit of a crap weekend. It seemed like they could have been the ones in maybe 10th place getting that point off stroll rather than giving it to them. So just a bit of a, a ball fumble there, which, yeah, you get my wrath for that. I mean, even if they didn't pick up the points from it, they, well, when it comes down to the final ranking, if they're if they're tied on points with another car, you do a count back to see who's got the most exactly, position. Yeah. That's 
already this season we've had teams tying on points and it wouldn't surprise me if we have a team tying on points or even very close at the end of the season where a count back becomes important and I think for Haas these weekends where if they're not necessarily scoring points scoring a high position will prove to be worthwhile I mean it's the only thing that's keeping Nicholas Latifi from being 21st in the 20 driver championship at this point in time you're also just saying there about um oh I forget the words you just said now, but you reminded me, I would call it a draw. It just very much made me think of Red Bull with Ferrari at the end of the season, just very being reminiscent of the Monty Python sketch, where Ferrari's the Black Knight. And you I was going to say, it's going to be Ferrari. Right, call it a draw. No limbs. I'll bite your kneecaps then. Yeah. Um, yeah, speaking of Ferrari being spinners, um, early May, would you like to give us your um, spinner? As yours also has a Ferrari link to it there. Yeah, I've got uh, Leclerc. I mean, okay, it could be a throttle issue, but he crashed when he wasn't under any pressure from anyone. He was in a race of his own. (laughs) And that crash was so costly. Like, I think if my maths are correct, and he had won, and Verstappen stayed second, neither of them getting the fastest point because the ups would have still stuck with signs, then there would be 31 points between them, but there's 63. And it's... If that's not a sign that George Russell's going to come back and win the championship, I don't know what is. (laughs) Yeah, and then my second one was Sergio Perez, because... He shouldn't have even been in third or fourth. He should have been in second place. He struggled the entire weekend until it came to about qualifying, where, I mean, he didn't do too badly in qualifying, got third. But then Hamilton got him right at the start. He couldn't match Hamilton's pace. And then was kidnapping. It was just... I don't really know what happened to Perez this weekend. He should have been saying. Anyway, it just seems very down in the dumps after the final French Grand Prix. <laughs> I am down in the dumps after the French Grand Prix. Afterwards, I was like, wow, that was terrible. <laughs> could be worse. You could have spent 50 quid on a, for, on a Charles Leclerc cap, to be fair. But uh, sticking in a similar Ferrari vein, Ada, uh, your, your spinner Ferrari. Yes, my spinner's Ferrari. For like, all the reasons we've said already, um, my friend said to me a couple of weeks ago that she felt like Ferrari had a Saturday car and they peaked on Saturday rather than Sunday, which I kind of agree with her in that way because they're only doing like 50% of the job in that they're never really, they always, well, um, what's, I can't remember the stats, but Charles started more. Um, three yeah. I think that just shows that it's more of a Saturday thing for him rather than Sunday. Yeah, he's got five race wins to his name, I think I'm correct to say, in 17 poles. Meanwhile, Max has 17 poles, 23 race wins. Yeah. So if it was this season, I think it was seven poles, but three wins, and seven wins, but three poles for, for the other way around. So it's benign the way that you want it to be if you're either of them. Well, if you're Max, it's kind of all right, because you don't mind messing and qualifying if you can get the race. And I'm pretty sure Max Verstappen and Charles Leclerc um, matched on how many poles they've got. What, over, no, their, yeah. over their career? Over their F1 yes, career. Yeah. Over their career, but Charles has only converted it into five wins, whereas Max has nearly five times more wins. And that's the crippling thing. And yeah, it's, it's just not good for Ferrari, which I mean does lead me into my spinner, which is more a case of it... My spinner for this one is not necessarily Ferrari, but Ferrari fans for thinking that just for once they wouldn't f- it up with stupid decisions. And Saturday they got good strategy. It shows they can do it. Saturday they had brilliant strategy because they had Carlos giving Charles amazing toe, brilliant qualifying. But then for some reason they just forgot to wake up the guy that did the strategy and take him to the racetrack on Sunday. I don't know. Whatever they did, it was dumb as hell and they... It, I don't know, they just cannot do Sunday strategy. Well, um, they, back, I don't see why Carlos didn't just ignore them because he ignored them at Silverstone and it worked. And it's like you can deal you can deal with being berated by the team afterwards, but you'll have a podium, or at the very least, if Perez had got past him, 
or Russell at this point, um, well, fourth, which is still more points. And in a constructor championship where they need every point they can get to get dribble, I'd rather take fourth than fifth and just run a bit on the tyres. He's not a new driver. He knows how to handle them. Um, so it's like, yeah, you have an argument with the Moment Team Radio and that's amusing and depressing all at the same time, but you still didn't need to come in if you didn't want to. You're the one driving the car at the end of the day. They've not yet done a system where they can manually kind of override it and then steer the car for you into the pits. So it's kind of, as much as I want to crap all over the, the strategist there, I do have to have to throw a little bit of poop at Carlos for that. Yeah, I mean, he could I don't have... want to, but, I've, but I feel like I have to. Hmm. He could have not done it, and he's not done it before. Again, we saw it at Silverstone, we saw it at Monaco, where he sort of forced him to go into an alternate strategy that in the end paid off. He was and... correct him on the penalty, for Christ's sake, and he didn't even know. I mean, he could have been wrong, but he just instinctively knew it was the wrong penalty that I told him yeah. about. Like, oh, no, it's this one. It, it, something's just not working with that team at the moment. It's damned annoying, especially if you're a Ferrari fan. My other spinner I've got to this week is the French Grand Prix itself for putting on a decent race that was quite entertaining and it was packed to the rafters. It was a capacity crowd at Paul Ricard and yet it has no place on the calendar. And this is the annoying thing of Formula One has now got to a point where it knows that all of its races are going to be packed out. And then it just goes, oh, you sold all your tickets this year and made a great profit. Good for you. We won't see you next year. Bye. And that doesn't make a huge amount of business sense. And equally from a fan's perspective, why are you going to skip a race that we now know under current regulations can be exciting, entertaining, generate that revenue if you view it purely from a business point of view, just to go to a circuit which we don't know if it will work. And I say that even though I really want Kyle and Army to come back, we don't know if it's going to work with the new spec cars. We don't know how Las Vegas is going to work. Hell, we didn't know if Vietnam was going to work. Turns out that had bigger problems. But the fact of the matter is we're getting rid of circuits that have now proven themselves to be great racing circuits that provide good motor racing with the new cars and the new setup purely on the grounds of a whim? I don't know. The way you could make France more interesting if you were to keep it, and I'm not for keeping France generally anyway, but especially if it's between that and sod right half. But you we you got what was it something stupid like 163 configurations for that track you have one configuration for qualifying and you change it for the race france would be a good circuit to host the sprinter and you change it for the feeder series so they're all on different circuits as well yeah or you you run france as one of the sprint weekends because then you have one for the qualifying one for sprint one for the grand prix i agree with the, the, that sprint idea i think have the, the one problem with that is that you're still including the sprint in a weekend when it should be abolished and thrown into holy hell. Yeah, but I think it would be fun like that. If we can, I think that's the way forward with sprints in general, that we need to do them at tracks that you can have so many different And then you have a different track for the sprint and a different one for the race. And that means then that when you have your two free practices, you have one free practice in one configuration, then the other one is the other. And then I think that sounds quite fun. And I also really... I, want to I just don't like the sprints. Okay, but what if we made the sprints like an F2 sprint race, where we take the top 10 and turn them upside down? Well, then I, then I theoretically don't have a problem with it because I don't see why they didn't just do that to begin with because it's like, we've got a perfectly good thing. Let's not do that. Um, it's like Ferrari strategy. Oh, that looks like a good idea. Let's not do that. Um, but just like it, for me, it's still the thing of, and I know we didn't even have a sprint this weekend, so I'll try to spend too long on it, but you use the feeder series and everything as the build-up to the Grand Prix on the Sunday. You don't need another thing to build up to the Grand Prix. You've already got qualifying. You've already got two F2 races or a, and a W2 race or an F4 and F3 races. You don't need extra. It just, again, you're saying about France, they make a profit, they get a set-up crowd, that's great, but it's not enough. It just feels like another way to just have a cash grab or just some more eyes to please the the simpler fans who have come along in the, like, the last couple of years or so who don't really care too much about it and just want to... Um. Yeah. It's, I'm still torn over the sprint, but there's definitely a way of making it work. And I think using one of yeah, the seven methods, there is of going around the castle, I think, could be the solution. 
And I do it like it would in Jewish Championship and have four categories all at the same time. Yes. Yeah, go back to how it used to be with like Formula Libre and stuff and basically put F2, F3. You want the feeder series on the same weekend, let's throw them all out at once. That could be spicy. Yeah, and I would probably miss somehow qualifying or a sprint or a race just because I would get lost in that shopping bit. That looked like so much fun. I so want to go around. With Ted Kravitz. <laughs> yeah, I want to be Ted Kravitz, looking at all the local soaps and perfumes and the food. I think that looks like a great day out in itself. Ellie may attend the guy that um, Adrian Newey met at uh, the Indy 500 once, who had been going there for about 30 years and had never seen a car once. Because <laughs> they got lost in the shopping. No, because he was just so busy enjoying like the festival atmosphere, but he never actually got around to getting into the stadium and watching the race. Why do I feel like that's Checo Perez's dad? <laughs> Going around living his best life. <laughs> anyway, speaking of people living their best lives, or you know, that's probably a terrible link. Anyway, it's time for Constructors Countdown. No change at the bottom. Williams still trail Aston Martin now by 16 points. AlphaTauri is in 8th with 7 points behind Haas in 7th. Alfa Romeo sits in a bit of a no-man's land in 6th place with 51 points. Ahead and down to 5th is McLaren reeling from a strong weekend from now 4th place is Alpine, just 4 points between them. The top 3 remain the same though. Mercedes now catching the worryingly stagnant Ferrari while Red Bull roars very nearly into the 400 club already this season. Yes, Red Bull still sitting at the top of the Constructors' countdown there and making a bid to get to the top of our countdown or at least our prediction scoring ranking system of many ingenious and scary things. Timo had a good weekend with his predictions and I'm not entirely certain where it came from. Um, It's almost scary. Let's pull up my spreadsheet and see how we've all done. So... uh, Last week we had Vicky Piria on as our uh, our guest, and she gave us some decent predictions. She scored for the cumulative guest two points, so well done to her. She predicted both a Charles Leclerc pole and a Max Verstappen win. Um, Ellie May and I only scored a pole each. Um, I scored a point each, rather. I scored mine for Charles Leclerc pole. She scored hers for Carlos Sainz fastest lap. Somehow you got that one right of the lot of them. And then from absolutely nowhere, Timo, four points, one for fastest lap, one for pole, one for first, and one for second. Are you still in last? I'm getting better at this. He's getting better at this. I mean, he is still last, yes. Um, I I didn't help myself earlier on, I admit. (laughs) Yeah, it really didn't help with that. Ellie May and I are both on 11 points apiece. She still has the better average over the season. Uh, Timo is now leading the guest on nine points. Uh, the guest so nearly double eight. figures. <laughs> yeah, soon to break into double figures. If if you do all right at Hungary, you could make double figures by the end of this by the end of the first half of the season. I will be. I will take that at this point. I will take that. If you get another four points, and me and Jesse will get the one. And you thought I wouldn't get in. You thought season I'll be trailing behind, and I still might be but I'm going to make you work for it. He's like the Mercedes of the group. He, uh, he weirdly is. Can we, can we also just acknowledge Ellie may pay me a compliment? <laughs> you bounce up and down a lot when you walk down the road? Jolly, what can I say? Well, especially if you're scoring four points every predictions weekend from here on out. Anyway... Um, Moving on from something as frivolous as our predictions to something equally frivolous, our fantasy F1 league review. And it comes to a slightly awkward moment where I have to congratulate my girlfriend on her win this week. Although it does seem a bit like insider trading to an extent or favoritism, but no, she genuinely had a team that somehow did well after the five retirements we saw across the grid, um, where she had simply picked a team of the tallest drivers she could afford, which was Alex Albon, Esteban Ocon, George Russell, Carlos Sainz and Max Verstappen. So if, if you want a strong team, potentially they're the ones to go for. Eh? Um, but yeah, there we are. She's not done too badly there. Well done, Georgia. Um, after that, on people not directly linked to the podcast, uh, Pastor Jesus' reawakening came in three points behind on 170. 
In the overall standings, Alex still leads at 2,281 points ahead of Tejas on 2,166. Lottie Talks Cars, despite having a bad week, is still third, but a sole point ahead of my BRT Yamaha. Um, Timo, you still occupy the bottom of the field comfortably. How many points do I have? Am I even in 1,000 yet? Oh, God. Uh, I've got to find the window that that's all on. Hang on a second. Um, I can't like, remember. Like I had Leclerc and not Sai team, and then I was very sad. Uh, let's see. Oh no, both of your teams are into the th- well into the thousands. They have been for a while. Um, on the curve is at the bottom, one thousand four hundred and fifty-two, and then the undercut podcast one is one thousand seven hundred and twelve. Um, this is this is where I need to figure it out because the, my predictions and my fancy F one team, it, I haven't quite got there yet because I curse, as we know, I curse people left, right, and centre. But then I get predictions right like this week. I'm like, okay, there's a method. I don't know what it is, but there's a method. But then it doesn't translate to the fantasy team. So I you can find the correlation between the two. Yeah. Either way, what's going to be my summer break thing? I'm going to get a bunch of whiteboards and just figure this all out. It's going to be like that scene from Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Lots of string and sort of notes trying to find mm-hmm. out. Who mm-hmm. uh, but anyway, you're still at the bottom of the league. Um, you've got a nice sandwich going on with Juan from uh, our sister podcast, The Break Check, over in America. So uh, congratulations there. You're not doing very well at all. Um, which is a good fun point to end our review of the French Grand Prix on. Um, we'll be back. That's all we've really got time for this week's episode, um, is it's probably about an hour long at this point. Uh, keep your eyes peeled for our Formula 2 and W Series review episode. We'll have our feeder series commentary out later, as well as a preview for the Hungarian Grand Prix. They'll both be out later this week. Um, Timo, where can the people find you? In the meantime, you can find me on the aforementioned On The Curbs, where I have interviews out every week with different people from the motorsport world. And if I could remember who I had on this week, I'd tell you, but you'll just have to tune on a Thursday to find out, like me. Um, I'm also writing stuff for Is It Fast and Paddock Priority, and I also have another podcast because three is the perfect number for now, apparently, until the fourth one comes along later, probably, um, which is the unofficial Nitro RX podcast, where we have a new episode out this week, I think, with another special guest which again you'll have to tune in to find out who i remember who that one is though i'm just being deliberately uh, mysterious so you have to click on it smart play there it's not just a mentor it's good marketing um ellie may where can the people find you you can find me with my key takeaways on the undercut podcast instagram or you can find us on tiktok which oh no i probably said for the hungarian grand prix we'll have formula re on there on the TikTok. We will, yes, because you two are both off to the London E3. She is. Oh, just the one of you. She is. Oh dear. Has something come up, Timo? <laughs> yes, I, I I do three podcasts now and I have to watch all of this and actually do stuff in relation to it. And I can't afford a trip in between all of that because otherwise it's going to be even more chaos than it's going to be. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of busy. But imagine having to juggle a proper job in with that as well, Timo. Oh, I don't need to, but I can't talk about it just yet. Stressful. Oh, I'm hiring. I am delirious right now. Especially when you're sitting there getting with work, and then your inbox is flooded with about twenty sort of Google Doc shares of Timo preparing for the rest of the season of Formula One with preview and review docs pre-set up, and you're sort of going. I'm trying to do work. Uh, I'm saving us time later. I already have 168 emails waiting for me in my work inbox. I do not need like 20 in my normal inbox. That's about as many as Toto Wolf would send uh, Michael Massey during a race last year. Stressful. Uh, Edda, where can the people find you? Um, you can find me on Instagram where I sometimes write my website that's in my bio. <laughs> I've never done this before. <laughs> uh, right, it's a nice and simple sign-off. That's all the merrier, more so than Timo's sort of myriad of sites, podcasts and places. You've got to balance it out a bit. Anyway. Jesse, where can people find you? I feel like someone's got to ask it and he's not going to ask himself, so... 
Oh, you took the hint. You're so kind. Um, I can be found across the internets on uh, Instagram and Twitter. I've also got the Undercut podcast on Twitter. So if you want to go and moan at us for things, go and find us there and tweet at us. Um, but if you're a fan of print media, you can find me where I'm a proper journalist working for Classic Car Weekly coming out in... Uh, yeah, it should be this week's issue. You can see me driving a very nice 1939 Lagonda V12. Fantastic car, although I did run out of fuel halfway through the test drive because big engine be thirsty. Um, very amusing, though, when to see that happen to you, it must be said. It was quite awkward stood at the side of the road with the least conspicuous car ever made and people driving past going, oh, look at that man. He's broken down in his flash car. What a prick. And sort of going, especially, especially as you're a younger man as well. It's like, ooh, he's got all that money. He doesn't know how to drive an old car. And he's especially because it sort of stood there and going, it's not my car. He stole it. Anyway, that's all for this week, especially with regards to Formula One before we all get very sidetracked and start having a go at me. We'll be back with our feeder series review and our preview of the Hungarian Grand Prix later this week.